Welcome to Better Than Nothing. What you are about to hear is just me being able to speak with some amazing people that come from many walks of life. This episode of Better Than Nothing is brought to you by Concept by Iowa Hearing. Your hearing is our priority. Visit iowahearing.com or call 877-955-4020 for a free hearing screening. That's 877-955-4020. Hello, this is Ken Root. I've made my livelihood from radio for about 50 years. The transmission of wireless signals go back to the 19th century with the work of the inventor Marconi putting the media in use in the early 20th century. A radio station called KDKA, an AM station in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, reported the results of the presidential election in 1920. Warren Harding, a Republican, beat James Cox, who was a Democrat. And since the Republican won, it appeared to be a fair election. From that point forward, just over 100 years ago, AM radio has been a means for the average person to get news and entertainment. The devices were large and cumbersome at the beginning, with several vacuum tubes inside a wooden or later on a plastic case. And then they became smaller and transistors cut the cost and allowed the portability of the device. And today we have an amazing array of communication devices, but AM radio is still around, uh, as well as some of those old radios. So I have with me a collector of antique radios and also part of an Iowa-based group that will hold an auction of radios, tubes, and all sorts of equipment on May 6th in Anamosa. Doug Spirison, how are you doing today? Good, thank you. Good to be with you. How long have you been interested in radios and been a collector? Well, I, I think uh, probably the mid-80s, so I've, I've been collecting for over 30 years and been part of our radio club for about that long, so it's been quite a journey. The club is called the IARCHS, and uh, what does that stand for? Iowa Antique Radio Club and Historical Society, IARCS. Tell me uh, about radios. That's really what people want to know. I'm kind of eager to get back to your auction because I bought a few a few years ago and transferred some to other farm broadcasters. There's a certain thing about having either one of these radios or one of these horn-type speakers or something like that that gives me a feel of what it was like at the time. So where do you go back to in your collecting? As early as the 1920s? Yeah, I have a few early radios. Uh, there are members who, who specialize in those very early radios. I have several, and it's, it's an interesting era. They're fairly simple, but the, the, uh, they're... They are uh, interesting to look at, uh, fun to collect. M you know, many of them can still be put in good working order. They they usually have several early tube types that they uh, utilize. And the earliest sets really operated for uh, use with a headphone set. 
And uh, later on, the, some uh, amplification stages could be added and they could use those early horn speakers or the different early speakers. The speakers are actually a, a whole other area of collecting. I have a few speakers around and people can uh, can uh, rehab the uh, speakers and make those work too. So if you can have an early set that still works and plays through a horn speaker if you want. But that, that early phase is important, especially in Iowa here, you know, the rural Iowa setting and electrification was not around and uh, commercial electricity that you came to your household was not widely dispersed through the rural areas. And uh, so you had uh, various battery sets where the, amongst the earliest sets, you know, you'd set, they'd frequently have two or three different batteries to uh, provide the right voltages and uh, a farmer could, uh, you know, even the farm communities could listen to the radio and hear the uh, hear the agriculture reports and so forth, get the weather and so forth, along with the, the advertising and some music and entertainment. So I think it was Marshall McLuhan coined that word, the global village. You know, radio is really what shrank the world down, made, made intercommunication, you know, possible all across the world, make it a global community. Iowa and the middle of America sets right in it because it was such wide open spaces. And uh, we have radio stations in Iowa now that are celebrating 100 years uh, plus. Uh, we've got uh, WHO in Des Moines. Uh, we've got WOC uh, in Davenport, I believe. We've got uh, KMA in Shenandoah. Uh, and some I've probably missed that go back uh, all the way into the 1920s when they started. And you're right about the battery power and the electricity, and I'll speak from rural America. Most people in rural America did not have electricity until the mid-30s when the Rural Electrification Administration came in and brought power on out from the cities to the rural areas, which was not really practical for a power company to do. And my father told that when he was a boy, he was born in 07, they loved to listen to the fights on the radio, and I believe they were Wednesday night fights, and they would get around the radio, this was in the 20s, and they had this battery, and according to him, they would listen to the three minutes of the round, and then they would turn the radio off, and his brother had a second hand on a clock, and they would then wait until one minute had passed and turn it back on and be able to get the next round. The battery sets are, are uh, interesting to work with, but uh, most of us prefer to work with, uh, you know, a regular household current. Back then they had uh, something called a wind charger too, so a, a farmer could set up a little windmill outside uh, and have the wind power his radio, a six-volt charger. And uh, so there are some interesting adaptations at the time. Of course, when the, uh, those AC Del the AC Delco power plants came around that farmers frequently installed and used the, for household current, and they were, I think they were 12 volt or 30 volt, I'm not sure anymore. But uh, there, were, there were radios set up to operate on, you know, on these farm current, farm current generators. Well, I think about it that... Uh... In the 20s, there was good prosperity across much of the country, and uh, people who could buy a radio uh, did so, and it truly opened up the world for them. And if you consider that you were reading a newspaper uh, to get your news and then be able to augment that with radio, which was here and now, 
and then moving through the Depression era when they didn't have any money, but they still had a radio, uh, they could figure out a way to be able to still stay in communication. And I think that was um, probably the big growth era. I know the WHO had the first farm broadcaster by that name in 1936 when Herb Plambeck went on the air on WHO and uh, broadcast agricultural news specifically at a certain time of day. And then that was copied all across the country on the big AM stations because they had to deal with the FCC. And the FCC said, how are you serving your broadcast community? And they could tell them all the things they were doing for the city of license, but they couldn't tell them they were doing really anything for people who lived 100 miles away except farm news broadcasting. And that's what put them on all of those stations across the country at that time. Our club did a tribute to uh, four of the pioneer radio stations in Iowa. And you just mentioned three of them, but uh, WHO, WMT, KMA, WOC were all early radio stations that were still operating a few years. So we actually presented them with a plaque, and we had Governor Branstad on uh, one of the programs. Doug, let's move on to the 1930s. One of the greatest words I think I've ever heard is superheterodyne. That was a circuit in radios. Can you speak about that and um, where that came from? Superheterodyne circuit, I, th- I believe George Armstrong invented, and uh, that was a big revolution Prior to that, you had things like tune radio frequency where you'd tune and retune the the radio frequency three times, and uh, it wasn't as good of a circuit. So the the superheterodyne circuit was created, and it's still in use today. Virtually all radios still operate on a superheterodyne where you uh, create an intermediate frequency by combining the the frequency you're tuning with a... uh, another frequency that's maybe 500 kilocycles off and uh, you you uh, harvest the uh, the intermediate frequency from that combination and then you can amplify that frequency three or four times and you have a signal strength that's strong enough to run through your amplifier circuit and play so it it, it was a better way of uh, tuning the frequency that you're trying to listen to without interfering with other radio sets and causing other types of interference so So it's still in use today. May I ask you about radios of that era? They uh, had a look to them that was pretty impressive. I don't know who designed them, but there were a a lot of things about those radios that made them highly recognizable. Do you have those categorized of what they were so you can kind of know what type of radio you're looking at? A lot of people think the uh, 30s were the golden era and they're they're almost always a wood radio. Um, you have the consoles, which are the larger uh, sets, floor standing sets. In the, in the 30s, they had what they call low boy consoles, and they're a little bit lower and uh, wider. But the uh, in the 30s, they, they grew taller, and they had a floor standing set that had a, a big speaker and a receiver in it. And uh, some, some of the uh, sets, the... Uh, the tabletop sets at the time were were generally uh, ca- what you call cathedrals or tombstones. So the cathedral had a pointed top and the tombstone had a flat top to it. And you could put that on a table. Sound those sounded uh, nearly as good as the consoles would. You you could say uh, 
There were a few early plastic sets, but not many. What brand names came out at that time? Well, the big names uh, you think of these days, Zenith, Philco, RCA. There were two really high-end uh, uh, radio manufacturers back then, Scott and uh, McMurdo Silver. You know, the chrome chassis and the uh, uh, high tube count. Uh, back in the day, you know, the more tubes, the better... <laughs> It was considered better for the radio. So sometimes the circuits were designed to, you know, to allow for more tubes. But uh, tube count is still still considered interesting even today. Could I ask you about the collectability of some of these? You know, if there weren't very many made, they're more collectible. And I would say the more expensive they were, the less that there were either made or sold. So with that Scott or that McMurdo that you spoke of, are those uh, very collectible? Yeah, those two are kind of a, a peak category. And I, I'm sure we have at least one set coming to our auction this May. When uh, There's a Scott radio listed on our uh, our website. The Zeniths, of course, are highly collectible. The Zenith, the, bla- the big black dial Zeniths are collectible with a, a, a high tube count. Uh, Philco is collectible. Many of them are good-looking sets. There's a few designer sets from that era that were highly sought after. The uh, Zenith Stratosphere was a set in, what, 36 or 37 that had uh, 15 tubes, and it was it was the, the top end of their, their radio line. And, and that's been like a holy grail for collectors for a long time, was to find a Zenith Stratosphere. And uh, I've heard of one in Dubuque area. I know the guy who worked on it. And so uh, there's a few of them around, but they're they're very expensive. As are the Scots and the uh, the McMurdo sound is quite quite rare. We there's a collector down in uh, Quad Cities. And we visited him, and his home is just full of these old. Uh, he's a Scott and McMurdo specialist. I mean, that's all he collects, and uh, his home was just full of these old radios, fully restored. They're just beautiful. Does so, he still uh, have a wife? <laughs> I didn't see her around. <laughs> <laughs> I bought a radio from a man at a sale one time, and uh, he was eager to sell it. And I said, why are you selling this? And he said, and his wife stepped up, and she said, because he can only have a certain number of radios. So he has to sell one if he's going to buy another one. <laughs> Well, that's kind of a running gag in the club. <laughs> so. Tell me about the 1950s and 60s, because that's when I was born and then started looking at radios and was listening to radios in the 1960s. That was a, a huge change, wasn't it, as far as the number of radios and then the technology? And then moving on into the 50s, uh, you know, radios would get smaller the, uh, the super heterodyne circuit and what they call the uh, All-American 5 circuit allowed uh, an inexpensive tabletop radio to be prepared. You could put it in a plastic cabinet. You know, the Bakelite cabinets had come on, and the uh, uh, so you didn't have an expensive wood cabinet. The All-American 5 circuit, you know, allowed you to, to uh, not have a transformer in the radio, so it, it reduced the cost there, and uh, it was a reliable circuit. And a fifth, so you could have a radio in every room in the 50s and uh, not be spending a lot. And uh, so the radios are smaller and easy to do that. Uh, you know, and also the transoceanic radios were, 
you know, pretty widely available in the uh, 50s. They were kind of a portable radio. It looked like a little black suitcase to start. The tube ones were. You could take that on your bus trip with you and put the antenna on the on the window and and listen to the radio on your bus ride or whatever. And so it was a portable radio. And you had different decorative radios. Uh, you know the uh, the plastic cases, the Bakelite cases. You know allowed you to do some creative designs and uh, interesting designs. Uh, some of the radios in the 50s, there's a, a whole series of radios from Crosley that look like dashboards. You know, they've got chrome grills and chrome knobs, and they look just like the dashboard of a car. So those are a kind of a collectible area. The European radios in the 50s and 60s came on, and they sound really good. They're high fidelity, and they had, uh, not everybody likes them, but uh, I think they're good looking, the modern design. You know, this whole area of the 40s and 50s where you could consider that the late phase of the, the Art Deco design period, the streamline, that streamlined look. And a lot of the designers of the day were involved in, you know, in creating radio designs. Uh, you think of Combs going all the way back to the uh, 30s and uh, Ames, Vasos, Dreyfus, they all, they all designed, did some radio designs, so... If you're interested in industrial design or commercial design, the designers were in on radios all through those years. What about the 1960s uh, and transistors? Do you kind of lose interest when you get to those uh, because you have such a love for the others, or are those relevant? There is a crossover interest. You know, the the invention of the transistor, it was really in the late 40s, and they got a Nobel Prize in the 50s, but... uh, the transistor is certainly one of the greatest uh, discoveries of the 20th century. We, you know, modern electronics would be, you know, we wouldn't have anything, any of our modern electronics without transistors. But we had radio before we had transistors. And uh, the 60s did did change things. And, you know, by the mid-60s, vacuum tube radios were basically on their way out or gone. And uh, solid state electronics transistors had taken over towards in the early 60s some of the best vacuum tube receivers were were created if you and you can still find these like fisher and scott and some of the other early uh late stage vacuum tube radios are considered some of the best sounding receivers around they they like the harmonics that come out of uh, vacuum tubes so there's still a, a hearty group of people that prefer the sound of vacuum tube radios over the cold digital switching of transistors. But uh, transistors are certainly here to stay. And it's one of the miracles of, uh, you know, one of the scientific miracles of our that generation. Let's take a moment to talk with Taylor Parker, who's the president of Concept by Iowa Hearing. I've worked with them for the last 17 years and worn their hearing aids for that length of time. And I have had excellent results. Taylor, dementia is of concern of people as we get older, and I understand there are several modifiable risks that you can employ. Could you tell us about those? Yeah, sure can. And so the studies were done by Johns Hopkins, um, Stanford, Cambridge University, so world-renowned um, you know, research centers. And what they found was there are 12 risk factors that you can actually modify you know, in your life Now, they broke it down by age under 45, 45 to 65, and 65 and above. Under the age of 45, proper education, so being well-educated, is the number one thing you can do under the age of 45. 
between the age of 45 and 65, obesity, alcohol consumption, blood pressure, brain injury, and hearing loss. So the, between the age of 45 and 65 is actually the, the number one thing you can do in that age bracket is actually treat your hearing loss. So it's not an age-related thing. So between 45 and 65. Over 65, smoking, depression, social isolation, air pollution. And when you talk about air pollution, it's not just being out and about in a large city. There are actually carcinogens in a wood-burning stove that can lead to one, hearing loss, but also um, things you can do for dementia. So it's not just out and about in large cities. Um, lack of physical activity and diabetes. Um, it can actually prevent or delay up to 40% of the dementia cases by modifying these pieces. And when you look at all those 12, nine of those are actually correlated to an untreated hearing loss. But the number one thing you can actually do out of all 12 and do it between the age of 45 and 65 is actually treat your hearing loss. So when they talk about hearing loss being a, a, a very important thing, treating your hearing loss is the most modifiable thing you can do to help offset dementia. And wearing hearing devices or treating your hearing loss can reduce dementia symptoms by up to 75%. So studies are showing not only that hearing loss plays a critical role in health conditions, you know, dementia being the, the biggest one, but also treating your hearing loss is not the number one thing you can do um, to help with dementia. That is very interesting information. Thank you, Taylor. Schedule your free hearing screening at Concept by Iowa Hearing. You can call them at 877-955-4020. A good farmer will never forget 4020 as the last four digits. Or you can go online at iowahearing.com. My guest is uh, Doug Spirison, who is uh, a radio collector, as you can tell, and uh, quite knowledgeable of that uh, collecting uh, era of beginning when they came out in the 20s and carrying it on through. We were up to the 60s at this point. And he's part of a uh, group of radio collectors, the IARCHS, that is going to have an auction coming up on uh, Saturday, May the 6th, 10 o'clock a.m., at the Lawrence Community Center in Anamosa, Iowa. That's on Main Street, so it won't be hard to find it. I wonder if you could talk about uh, what you expect to have, how long the auction will probably run, because uh, for one thing, I'd like more people to uh, have appreciation for radio, and you can certainly get it if you want to come there and, and buy some of the items that they have, or at least look at them. What will be offered? What kinds of items will be offered, Doug? Well, here's our shameless plug for our auction. So uh, I, I'm glad you gave you described the location, the day and location. It's really a walk through history, through radio history, because you'll see radios and equipment from all eras. It's just a fascinating uh, uh, walk. And be sure to arrive early so you go through the, uh, you know, the auction preview. You could even come down Friday if you're in the area Friday afternoon and, and walk through the auction setup. There's always a few club members there and, and uh, you run into people that know a lot about certain things about radios and you can, uh, you'll certainly run into a few friendly people that will share their information with you. It's kind of fascinating to hear about the different aspects of early radio. I noticed last time that I was there, there were a huge number of tubes, apparently new tubes that were for sale by people. 
and uh, a lot of people were there to get them. Why is that? Of course, you know, the old adage, they're not making them anymore. Well, they're not making very many anymore. I think there's a little bit of production in the Soviet Union and China now, but uh, they are durable. And so most of those old tubes uh, are still in good playing condition. And uh, first of all, they're interesting in and of themselves. And if there's such a quite a variety, there's a rarity thing. So when anytime collectors, you know, deal with a, uh, a subject area and some things are more rare than others, why those become more collectible or, or certain design features and the early tubes, of course, have uh, a lot of interest because there's not as many of them and they, they are historical. But if you're repairing radios, you know, many, many collectors would keep radio, you know, tubes as uh, spares that they can use in their, their restoration efforts. It's easier to pull one out of stock than it is to go online and order one from eBay or one of the tube suppliers. If you have one in stock, that's, that's a great way to get it. Some of the, some of the tubes have become, you know, there's not very many of them. And so they have increased value. And so you have tubes like 40, 1L6, you know, and a number of these different early tubes are less common. And uh, so they have higher value. I have a, the brown leather transoceanic and it has a 50A1, the ballast tube. Well, you can't get them anymore. Somebody's making a solid state substitute for it, but you don't have the actual original tube anymore because there's so few of them around. There's shortages of certain tubes. You know, the eye tubes that were very popular in the 30s. You help you tune your radio. You'd have a little green eye, a green tuning eye, and they really look neat. They aren't making them anymore, and there's there are some left. And uh, so if you need one for your radio, you would have to pay the price. So there's a lot of interest in tubes and the test equipment. Even a lot of collectors are just love that old test equipment, the tube testers, the signal generators, you know, different meters, different capacitor checkers, you know, that there, there, there are collectors that love test equipment. Doug, one of the things that surprised me at your last auction was the uh, number of radios or not necessarily radios, I would call it receivers and other components that were solid state from the 1980s. Some of that beautiful chrome and uh, stainless steel stuff. And they were selling for a lot of money. Is there a whole set of collectors that go after that, or are they actually still using it? Well, we're trying to promote that in this auction now is kind of expand our interest to include some of the uh, vintage audio from the 70s, I think what you're referring to, right? And, uh, and, and we're trying to draw in the vintage computers. Those are 70s, 80s, and uh, the vintage ham radio, the early... Uh, Vacuum tube uh, ham radio equipment is collectible. So we're trying to expand that part of the auction. But the, uh, yeah, the solid state gear from the 70s, I mean, I was around during that era, and a lot of people had these big, especially the big Pioneer receivers are popular, but some other names are probably as good. Uh, the Macintosh is uh, very high-end collectible, uh, but Sansui and others, you know, these the the really big sets, the ones that put out a hundred watts and uh had really big transformers and capacitance. Why if you if you get them reconditioned, they still sound great. Some people feel they're the best equipment out there, and so uh 
you have the audiophiles that still love that the high end uh, solid state gear from the 70s. I have um, one story I want to drop in here for you on tubes. Um, I saw the transmitter for WLW radio in Cincinnati. I was on a tour there. They were one of the very early farm stations, and they took me out to the transmitter building. <clears throat> and that station has a tremendous history because that was the station that the government tried to turn into the nation's station. And they were trying to hook up 250,000 watt AM transmitters, apparently in series, three of them. And one of those transmitters was still there. I may exaggerate a little bit, but one of those tubes was four feet tall. It was a vacuum tube. It was like two and a half feet across and four feet tall. It had to cost a fortune then and be very rare, but I do remember that. I doubt you'd ever see a tube like that anywhere else. Yeah, some of that transmission stuff is really is really big and really neat. Yeah, I know the uh, the Collins the Collins gear the transmitting to Collins gear sometimes shows up at our auction, and that's it's very popular. I heard you have a collector out of Dubuque, actually an estate out of Dubuque, that may sell in your auction. Is that still going to happen? Yes, um, I have communicated with the estate recently, and that 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 estate is coming to auctions, and uh, he describes it as at least three trailer loads. So hmm. I had visited with uh, Walt back, you know, twenty years ago. We had a local group in Dubuque that would get together every quarter or so. You know, a good group of guys. We had a lot of fun. He had a large collection in his basement, and uh, I got to see it one time. I there should be some interesting things show up. You know, it's great when we have these estates. First of all, it's a good service to the to the club is to be able to sell your stuff at some point and uh, redistribute it to the collectors. And uh, so there's always some interesting things that show up. The high-end collectors should have something. And, uh, you know, there's always a lot of stuff available that's popularly priced. And there's a, there was a lot of literature uh, that he had, you know, the old radio magazines and uh, the uh, schematic literature, I think, is going to turn up. And he had a large collection of tubes. And so I haven't seen it lately, but uh, he had trays full of tubes. And uh, some of those may be the, the valuable types that uh, people need and want. So Wow. Three trailer loads. That is, uh, I don't know, but they better show up on Thursday and start sorting it or they're not going to be ready for the Saturday auction. Yeah. We have two two check-in days, so I, I hope they can get all the gear gear there. Last time we moved uh, an estate from Dubuque, Jerry Lang, our club founder, we moved his estate down in uh, 2019. We filled up a moving truck. <laughs> Sometimes these estates can grow to quite a size, and uh, but it's always interesting to see what comes out. And there's there's something for everybody, I think, to pick up when an estate comes to sell. Well, so, I want to say again where. This is going to be held. It's going to be at the Lawrence Community Center, 600 Main Street in Anamosa. It's going to be Saturday, May the 6th at 10 a.m. for the start. How early that morning will you be open? Uh, the door should be open at 8. And I, you know, I'd encourage you, if you're interested at all, to come down and just look around and, and listen in what other people are saying and maybe ask a few questions. You, you learn a lot that way. And, of course, the auction itself is very exciting. And they, they keep the auctions moving and there'll be food there. And uh, it's it's a good outing. That's It's probably our biggest outreach of the year is the, uh, is the annual auction. 
get to run into a lot of the club members and uh, socialize a little bit. It's just a fun thing to attend. If you've ever been to an auction, you know the excitement, the auction excitement. How to get online to uh, keep track of this as you get close to it. Radio-collector.com. Is that your main website? Yes. Yeah, and I'd go there. You could start looking at that now. We have some photos from the uh, auction items up already that will be at auction, available at auction. There's quite a bit of information on the auction, and some previous auction photos are up. So that's a good a good uh, thing, and that'll, that'll be your latest information will be posted on radiocollector.com. So check that out. And we have that uh, an email address. If you have any questions, you can email us at 2023auction at radio-collector.com. And we have a, a Facebook group. Just do a search for Iowa Antique Radio Club and you'll you'll find it. And that that we should try and keep that posted with some of the latest information too. Well, Doug Spearson, thank you very much for talking to us, telling us about your love for radios and the history of them. And hopefully you'll have a good crowd. I think that it's wonderful that those people have these big collections and can be redistributed, as you say, out to people who will appreciate them for at least one more generation. I do find, however, the things that I hold valuable, my children don't. So it's good to get them out to somebody else. And uh, I'll plan on seeing you May the 6th in Anamosa. Very good. Thank you, Ken. Look forward to seeing you there. Thanks for listening to Better Than Nothing. I hope you stayed awake for most of it and liked what you heard. If you'd like to tell me your thoughts or relate your memories... Send it to kenroot at gmail.com. We'll try to put out one of these every week, and you can sign up with your podcast service to be reminded when the next one's available. See you next week for another episode of Better Than Nothing.